0: Welcome to Out With Dan, the podcast that spotlights and examines the voices of LGBTQ plus authors, characters, and our allies. Together, we lift our voices and we tell our stories. I'm Dan White. Join me as I chat with this week's author. Hello and welcome back to Out With Dan. I'm excited to talk to Ashley Winstead about midnight is the darkest hour welcome ashley
1: hi dan it's so great to be here i'm so excited to talk to you too
0: oh thank you so
1: i've heard you say but is midnight the darkest hour Yes, it is. Um, I have a very like literal-minded husband who I've also gotten a lot of grief for the title of my debut novel, In My Dreams, I Hold a Knife, in which there was no knife in the book. So now, I know, now it's like a sin that I will never, ever repeat. No more metaphors. So literally, the Midnight is the Darkest Hour. I verified that before I even suggested the title as an option. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I appreciate that very much.
1: <laughs> so were you born in the south? I was born in Naples, Italy. Um oh. to two, yes, I know. So not not even um in America, um but to two uh, navy officers. Okay. Um okay who just had one who had come out of New York and one who'd come out of East Tennessee and met in Naples, Italy of all places. So that is where I was born. Yep. Spent the first four years of my life. And then we moved back to the States and I spent the next like 14 years migrating from from naval base to naval base every two years and then did choose to go to Nashville for college. So that Mm -hmm. went. Yeah. So basically when I was 18, that kind of started my um, love affair slash complicated relationship slash, you know, insert whatever you want with with the South.
0: So it was a lovely thing, because honestly, had you said you grew up down the road from me in eastern North Carolina, I would have believed it, because there are things that you say in Midnight is the Darkest Hour that I'm like, oh my goodness, she must be this, that, or the other. So one thing I want to talk about is the law, which I love, because Southerners often don't say the police or the sheriff is the law, and it's this absolute thing is did you run afoul of the law in nashville <laughs> um,
1: i should have like to, to be completely confessional to start this conversation off you know there are many things i did that i should have uh, gotten caught by the law for probably um but i was fortunate enough to uh, to not um but it's kind of funny you say that and it delights me that you say that about the the phrasing feeling so familiar because like I mentioned, my father's family is, is from East Tennessee and I spent a lot of time traveling there, visiting there. And I think when you're a kid and especially when you're a kid who has like an ear for language and is going to grow up to be a writer, you're just a little sponge soaking it all up and keeping it, you know, in some part of your um, your psyche and your brain. And then, Midnight was my avenue that I gave myself to just like let it all come out. Um,
0: I love it. There's another phrase, and I've written down a million of them because I just enjoyed it so much. But there's a place where um, Ruth says, I floored him. Mm -hmm. And I have not heard that term, honestly, since I left the South 30 years ago. And I was like, wow, I understand that. Now, I don't know whether people that live in other parts of the country know what that is or if that's something everyone says and I just don't know it. So that's so what, funny.
1: I had no idea no one like other people didn't say that. I I well as long as
0: I've been in LA, I don't think I've seriously I don't think I've heard it's one true. person say that. And it's it's something because for Southerners or at least for me that was like the person
1: is without words. Yep. And I loved that because I was like wow that's cool. It's a powerful, like, to me, it just makes so much sense as a phrase, like, you floored him, you know? Um, Wow. Wow. Have I just been living in a community of my own head where I'm like, oh, we all say this, Um, but you're so right. I spent a little time in L.A., and I do remember feeling like um, there was a really fascinating kind of division of language. And, um, yeah, it's like one of those things where it's so native that you don't inspect it. And I love
0: that. I mean, and so now to get into a little bit of the meat of the story, which with another phrase, uh, evil, sorry, evil has come to bottom springs. And I found that growing up religious in the South, evil was always something on the outside unless you were 100% participating on it. And our little bubbles of churches or communities, they were always so perfect. But then when something goes wrong, evil has come. And I always thought growing up, Wasn't it here before in some way or another? (laughs) Uh huh. So, what do you think about that?
1: Um, I feel like I had the exact same experience where evil was this like, um, this invading, corrupting force that was on the outside. Um, but I personally, as an adult, um, and by the way, you're a very smart, uh, kid growing up thinking about that. Um, but as an adult, I absolutely, well, I don't even know if I believe in evil. I guess I'll start there. (laughs) Um, I'm like, but I, you know, I believe in genetics and, and human beings as animals and certain sorts of predispositions and that are like genetic predispositions that are then like exacerbated by living conditions and being mistreated. And so I guess, um, yeah, I will say that for me, evil isn't a mystical thing. And I tend to side with, um, I forget who, who's quote, the banality of evil argument that, you know, evil, real evil is, is very banal. It just looks like human beings being the worst versions of ourselves. Um, but something that has always captured my imagination since growing up Um in a kind of of a family that was religious, though my family got increasingly more religious as I (laughs) aged until like a final showdown, but um, was evil as this sort of like independent force that could act on the world has fascinated me my entire life Um, to the point where if you tell me a story or like if you say the words occult or hell or, the devil or demons. I'm there. I want to know. Because to me, that's sort of like imaginative thinking about evil and like how it operates, how it ensnares people. Um you know, like these these kind of like fictional characters. <laughs> we've I think you can probably tell what I think about religion right now. <laughs> With these, these fictional characters that we've like devised to embody evil. That's endlessly fascinating to me.
0: It is. And I found that as I've grown up, uh, having grown up religious and then sort of dabbling with it sometimes in in my adult life. Uh, I'm very spiritual. I'm not really very religious. But I do love to hear when someone wants to tell me about what the devil's going to do. That fascinates me. And I'm never going to argue with you because I really want to see exactly how far down that rabbit hole will you go. I'm just going to smile and nod. And then, of course, wonder whether I should hide from you from now on. Exactly.
1: (laughs) I still 30 minutes in your company and and fleeing, and it's like um, oh, yeah. I need,
0: as my mother used to say, I ducked him, which means she saw someone she knew and she hid so they wouldn't see them. So <laughs> there are days I simply have to duck people because I'm like, oh, I can't deal with you today.
1: <laughs> yes. yes, no, that, and basically, if you're the kind of person who. Like X's out black cats that cross your path, like my family in East Tennessee, you know. And you you are, you look out at the world around you and you see like the devil working in people, or you see evil's hand. That is a, that is a worldview I am fascinated by and I want to know about, um, just like that level of magical thinking. Um, and that is like what I wanted to explore in Midnight.
0: So you bring up something that that reminds me of some of my family. So they Mm -hmm. want to talk about the devil and evil and how all these things are going on. But God forbid one of their child wants to read any book that has a witch in it or anything that is other than, you know, a poor human that's being put upon. And I'm like, but you teach them this exact thing at home. And I'm assuming, so I'll ask you, is that part of what your love of twilight was and why that figures into the book.
1: Was it off limits? Well, so I, it wasn't, I did have a lot of things that were off limits though. I am now going to confess to you since confession is like the theme so far (laughs) that I wasn't a twilight lover as, as a young adult. I think I was a little bit too old by a few years to, to be sucked into the twilight mania. I observed it. And was like fascinated mm-hmm. by it, and you know the midnight release parties, and the the young girls crying into their cameras and you know their camera phones about Edward and Jacob, and just like the whole the whole nine <laughs> yards, the mania of it. Um, but I I was participating in a church um, that didn't want us to read Harry Potter okay. um, because of the occult elements. I myself wasn't allowed to like watch. Buffy, or any of the things that I really wanted to watch when I was, you know, a young kid. Just um, none of that was allowed. There were so many things that were off limits. Um, I found instead of Twilight, my vampire novels of choice were. Christopher Pike novels Um, and he wrote about this like ancient multi-thousand year old vampirist who like begrudgingly has to save the world even though she's very tired of being in the world Um, and it's full of like sex and gore and truly wasn't appropriate for me at 11 probably if you believe in like uh, (laughs) that sort of thing but I couldn't get enough of them and those I had to hide.
0: Yes and I do think sometimes what parents and parents do a wonderful job. Some don't really want to bang on parents. I think think sometimes parents get so uh, frustrated, so down on a child about you can't do this and you can't do that. And the unfortunate thing is that makes a child want to do it more because now, why is it I cannot do it? You let me do all these other things, but yet this is the one thing you can't. And to sort of slide into book banning, I have some friends in Louisiana who are trying to get the Bible banned because they're like, "Is there any book on earth that has more murder and rape and mm-hmm. all kinds of things that go against society's good side, and yet it's not being banned?" So
1: yes, and talk about if we were going to examine a book's effects on the world, what has had a more murderous and 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 you know like writ large kind of like large scale negative impact on the world than the Bible.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: I love that. And also it, you're so right. Like the, the easiest way to guarantee someone is going to do something or reach for something is to tell them (laughs) not to. Um, And I just want to make sure I respond to your, your larger point about why I brought in Twilight into this sort of like religious world of, of, of thinking about devils and demons. And you're totally spot on that that was me thinking, you know what? I want to show or make some sort of point about the fact that believing in the devil and believing in, in Edward Cullen and believing in the low man and whatever other occult superstitions really operate on the same level.
0: Exactly. In my
1: opinion, it's the Uh, same level, level. the same logic, the same kind of magical thinking. And so if you are willing to admit one, why not the other?
0: Well, that's right. And, you know, you in your book and you do. So we'll talk a little bit about your book. You are here about that. Right. So (laughs) we can
1: talk about anything. Yeah.
0: One of the one of the things that I felt that I saw and recognized from growing up, especially in the community. So I grew up in a very small community, probably smaller than Bottom Springs, yeah. if possible. And the good and the evil and the bad and all of this stuff, but the outcast, the people yeah. that weren't quite as well as, or the person who was slightly different. I mean, I loved Ruth and Everett and, I recognized Ruth and Everett. I went to school with them, and I saw what happens when you when you put someone down, or you tell someone they're not good enough, or you beat them, as mm-hmm. is the case here, and abuse them. And I want to say that you did a great job with that. I I hated that your characters were abused, but what you did was you showed us a reality, because mm-hmm. it's it's nice to have a romance novel. I love romance and it's nice to have mystery and suspense but what you showed us was a slice of life that really does still exist unfortunately
1: yes no and and um, I really appreciate you saying that because it's so funny how many preachers, kids and other people this book has reached um and I'll hear the you know the first thing someone will say is like, this reminded me so much of how I grew up. And, um, you know, I, that heartens me because I not only did I pull a lot from my own experiences, um, firsthand things that I witnessed or, or um, you know, pieces of how I grew up, but also friends that I've spoken to. And then I think this is my most highly researched book um, that I've written so far and I tend to be a researcher anyway. So for me, that's saying something, but I just really wanted to get it right. Um, and it, it kind of makes me laugh a little bit because one of the first things my agent said, my literary agent who lives in New York city, um, (laughs) and you know, has just like had a very different life experience. She was like, this place bottom Springs doesn't seem real. It seems like it's Mm. a fairy tale. And she knew that I was I was striving for a kind of like fairy tale sense of cadence and lyricism mm-hmm. to the storytelling, mm-hmm. um, but she's like the place itself. Does do places like this exist? And I was like, Oh, Melissa, you sweet, mm-hmm. sweet sheltered New Yorker. Um, <laughs> yes, there's. It's we're out here. It's out here. Um, you
0: know, so that you know, you've said something that is something that I thought of before chatting with you. Is there is there is a bit of sheltering for people who grew up in large cities. And I know, so if you watch the news in the large cities is where all the evil exists. You know, in the (laughs) South and in small towns, it's all about Kumbaya and all that stuff. (laughs) And I think to myself, it is actually just the opposite. A in statistics, bottom, show it's the opposite. Yep. Right. You can't get lost in Bottom Springs. Now you could get lost in the woods, but if you were yeah. in town in Bottom Springs, you cannot get lost. Turns get out lost. you can get lost in Houston, Los Angeles, and Manhattan very easily. Yeah. And I think that is something you captured because there is a bit of, especially when you're Roose age and Everett's age, there is a bit of desperation to escape. Yes, And you're not able to. I mean, in, in the book, Ruth doesn't have the money to escape. It's not like run away. And when you grow up in a village or a very small town, those in power really form everyone. There is no getting away from it.
1: There, there's something. Um, well, first of all, I'm really glad to hear that the sense of claustrophobia that I really wanted to impart into Ruth and Everett's experience in Bottom Springs is, is, you know, that you were reading that too, because there, I really wanted to um, capture what it feels like, because this is my coming of age thriller mm-hmm. out of all my thrillers. Um, and so I want really want to capture that experience of coming of age and becoming an adult in a small and somewhat stunted place mm-hmm. in which you are you have grown beyond it, but you are trapped and captured and mm-hmm. and starting to become malformed by the way that it's it's confining you and holding you down you're so desperate to escape and I've had so many readers um say to me things like why didn't ruth just leave? why didn't and it's so interesting to me. And I say this with like all love and and appreciation for my readers, but that really shows that you have never been absolutely without two pennies to rub together or or a kid who's been told your whole life that this is the way the world works and you're out of place in it. And if you venture, if you do these things, you know, like fire and brimstone will rain down on you, maybe. Or just like there will be some sort of really terrible negative consequences. And by all this, I just mean to say, like, the chains are financial. The chains are psychological. All of these things that bind keep people bound. Um, it's not as simple as just packing up and walking out.
0: Now, there are people that I went to high school with um, a long, long time ago, and mm. um, who have never left the county we grew up in to live anywhere else. I'm not saying it's good or bad. It is just what it is. Some of my friends grew up to be teachers. They taught locally, librarians, firemen, whatever. Uh, They stayed local. And for them, that's great. That was not me. I was Mm -hmm. rude. I was waiting for that letter to come from a college that said I could go somewhere. I could get out. My parents loved me. I'm very, very fortunate, but I needed more than what they were able to give me. Yeah. I saw friends who did not have that support. And I, you know, that was one of the things that I saw in Ruth and Everett that they knew they needed more to feed their soul and their mind, Mm -hmm. and they simply weren't able to get it. And you captured that in a very heartfelt way and in some, Mm -hmm. in a bit of a devastating way. Um, which I hope that's a good way to say it.
1: I I take that as a huge compliment um, because I guess that's how I feel about it. So, uh, you know, I I feel that way about it, too, that it's in many ways devastating. And I think even though I wrote Bottom Springs as this kind of religious church state sort of, you know, um, small rural community, I think in a lot of ways I was drawing on my experience growing up as a Navy brat and Mm -hmm when you grow up surrounded by a lot of people who, uh, I mean, talk about a closed community, a Naval base. Right. Um, And you grow up with a lot of people who don't have a lot of money. I mean, let's be honest about what the military is for a lot of people, which is like Mm -hmm. hey, their escape, their last resort, the only place that'll take them. Um, You know, like it's.
0: And they're never going to make enough to escape either.
1: They're never going to. And there was this pattern growing up where, You would think for a while that some kids would get the like jet propulsion, the momentum because they were bright and they seemed like they had a lot of promise. And you thought that kid's going to make it. They're going to reach escape velocity and they're going to get out. And then something would happen and they would stay stuck. And their version of staying stuck was like going into the military like their dad. Or it was just this thing that was. Um, I don't know. It's just this kind of like culture of, Mm of a lot or or recognizing like, okay, you know, we're all kind of desperate to get out and not many of us are making it. And, and I think I took some of that um, and infused Bottom Springs with it. And Everett is obviously the one who reaches escape velocity and Ruth is the one left to uh, be jealous of him and mourn, yeah. mourn his. I mean.
0: And they were such good friends and their chemistry together was just amazing. It's funny because you've called it a coming of age story and I gather it really is. And I think I just saw it as an escape story yeah. in a lot of ways. I did want to, um, there was a quote I had. Um, sorry, I'm going to find it because it's important to me. Um,
1: I love that.
0: It's funny what we see for other people that we cannot see for ourselves. And that was very, that was that was a moment that it's like, I think that we as humans, that's very often the case that we we may put someone else first and we can see someone mm-hmm. else succeeding and not necessarily ourselves. So. Well done on that.
1: Thank you. And isn't that what friends do? And, and, you know, in in its most ideal form, what people who love you do is see the things for you that you can't see for yourself. And honestly, that's part of why I write um, to kind of like get that vision on other people, other human beings.
0: Well, I will say, Ashley, when said you have done a really bang up job with this, this has been It's such a wonderful book. I cannot crow about it enough. I have told everyone who will listen, if you don't get it, you're missing out for
1: sure. Thank you. What I mean, that just honestly melts my heart or (laughs) fills it up or some combination Uh, of that. Thank you so much, Dan. uh, That's that's uh, such an honor.
0: it really, it really is good, and because I'm a silly goose, I just have to do this. The fact that Everett's father drinks Pop-Off and Coke, I was just like, you know, Pop-Off is a step above Boone's farm, and I loved it. I was like, Lord, yes. that really does show to get, shows how far down on the pecking order they were.
1: Exactly. <laughs> no, those are the careful, important details that you have to, that you rack your brain to make sure you get right as a writer. You did a good job at it. This man drink. Yeah, well,
0: it it, it has to be, and I'm I'm sure I'll go to hell for bringing that up right at the end of our
1: conversation. (laughs) Absolutely not. Well, maybe according to Reverend James Cornier, but you know (laughs) that's pretty much all of us.
0: I'm gonna step away from James at this point. (laughs) Ashley, do you have a website or social media you'd like to share?
1: I do. So you can find me at ashleywinstead.com um, and on Instagram where I just kind of spend all my time. I'm at Ashley Winstead Books. So huh. I'd love to be friends with anyone there. Chat I books.
0: love it. I love it. Thank you again, Ashley, for joining me. The book is Midnight is the Darkest Hour and I cannot recommend it enough.
1: Thank you so much, Dan. This is wonderful.
0: Thank you. Hang on for me just a second. Thank you for joining me for this week's episode of Out With Dan. You can find more information about this podcast and its host at outwithdan.com, on Twitter at outwithdan, and on Instagram and Facebook at gooutwithdan. This podcast is hosted by Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, and the theme music is provided by bensound.com. Join us again soon for the next episode of Out With Dan.